Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Let me give you a couple of program notes before we open in prayer, and then we'll pray and then we'll get started. Quick, quick notes. First of all, great to be with all of you this morning. Good morning. Wonderful to see all of you. Good morning. Good morning. I've drawn from a bunch of different sources today. They're all going to be in the appendix. So uh, people like Derek Kidner, Robert Alter, The Bible Project, which John mentioned last week, preceptaustin.org, and of course, Tim Keller that I always refer to. So that'll all be in the appendix. You'll see that we're going to cover some major themes in the text across the uh, whole book of Genesis. And then we're going to breeze through chapter by chapter fairly quickly. And I've got in red, you'll see in notes in red, a couple of the stories that I want to linger on. But here's the other thing. In, in preparing for this talk and getting ready for all this, I got just learned so much about the life of Abraham that I'd never seen before. And I got so excited about it. And so the life of Abraham turned out to me to be not just a series of disjointed stories, but a, a one cohesive story from start to finish. And so I want to get through all that. From the beginning to get to 20, chapter 22, because if we don't get to chapter 22, the climax, it won't hang together like a cohesive story. So usually when we do this, I'll stop and break and I'll have questions and comments Let's stop. Let's pause. Let's talk and discuss. Sometimes I'll throw out questions to all of you to say, how about this question? Think about this and get the discussion going. But this time, if you forgive me and bear with me, I like to hold the questions to the end as much as we can. And I'll try to save a lot of time for that to try to deal with those things. Genesis has a lot of interesting difficulties and divergences and all kinds of things to talk about, a lot of which I, I, don't, I couldn't answer for you anyway. But I want to kind of save a lot of that for the end as much as we can. And we'll get through because I'm super excited about what I wanted to talk about about Abraham today. So with that, let's please open in prayer and we'll get started. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. Thanks that uh, you've given us this opportunity to study your word Thanks for um, life of Abraham and the lessons that he can teach us. Please open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, background of the book of Genesis. I was surprised to learn, one of the first surprises was that commentators said that the transition from Genesis 11 to 12 was the most significant transition in the Bible. One commentator said that the transition from 11 to 12 was bigger than the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I said, really? Yes, Genesis 1 through 11 is all about the creation of the world, God making order out of chaos. And then by the end of Genesis 11, with the Tower of Babel and the scattering of everybody, it's all just to just, just send it back into chaos again. And God had a reboot with Noah in the middle where he found one righteous person and tried to restart. And we're going to start the whole thing over and have that handed down from generation to generation. But it's all petered out. And by the end of Genesis 11, the one commentator said, it's like the candle of faith in the world is no longer, it's not just flickering. It's gone out. It's gone out. And so God finds one person, Abraham, who is in many ways the anti-Noah. Because he's not, with Noah, God found one righteous person to restart everything. And, Noah, and Abram lives in a town called Ur, which is known for its moon worship. And in Joshua, we find that him and his whole family were pagan idol worshipers. So God just finds Abraham and calls Abraham and has him be the, the one through whom he's going to complete his plan of redemption. And the whole pattern 
is creation, fall, redemption. And in many ways, this is the pattern of the whole Bible. Creation, fall, redemption. And of course, you see this here, creation and the fall. And then the plan of redemption is going to start through Abraham and his family. And God's going to bring about his plan of redemption through Abraham and his family. Now, uh, Abraham's life can be summed up like this. God says, go out. And Abraham says, where? And God says, I'll tell you later. He says, you'll be a great nation. Abraham says, how? God says, I'll tell you later. You have a son. When? I'll tell you later. Go sacrifice that son. Why? I'll tell you later. Abraham, the whole story raises some really great questions for us. First of all, how do I balance faith, family, and fortune? And I picked the word fortune because it starts with the letter F, so it would match the other two. But it's the, the, the whole idea of work and family. If you ask your average non-Christian neighbor, how do you balance work, your career, your job, and family? Everyone struggles with that. We, we all struggle with that. How do you balance those things, right? And then, and then you throw in your faith. You say, well, I want to be involved in spiritual things in the church. And now as a Christian, how do I balance faith, family, and fortune? These are timeless subjects. And, and the book of Genesis, Abraham, wrestled with that. And so we'll hopefully get some lessons for that today. And then how do I know God is there? Bigger questions. How do I know God is really there? How do I know that he loves me? How do I know that God sees me, understands what I'm going through? Much deeper questions. Abraham has a lot to say about that as well. So major themes, and they're all going to be on this one page. We'll talk about this and cover just some of the major themes you see in this section of Genesis, but also the whole book of Genesis. Genesis is written like a symphony. I got this from the guys of the Bible Project. Genesis is like a symphony. You go to a great symphony, you listen to a great symphony, and in the first movement, you hear the melody. And then throughout the rest of the symphony, you hear echoes and echoes of the melody. And you say, ah, I remember that. That's the main melody. And it comes back again and again. So here, in the beginning, God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. And then later, Noah walks with God. Adam and Eve are sent out into the wilderness. And then later, Hagar is sent out into the wilderness. The serpent in the beginning uses deception, and later Abraham and Jacob will both use deception. Noah is saved from great destruction and chaos all around him with a flood, and later Lot, in our reading this week, is saved from the battle all around him and the chaos all around him by uh, Abram. There's also little things in the language that do this as well. For example, when poor Sarah says to Abram, you know, take Hagar, my servant, and sleep with her. Let's produce a child that way. The, the Hebrew text says, Abram, uh, hearken to the voice of his wife. And those exact words are the words that are used to describe what Adam did with Eve when he says, here, take the fruit and eat. And Adam, hearken to the voice of his wife. And when you hear those things, you're meant to say, ah, that's the echo of the symphony coming back. And it happens again and again and again. Genesis 1 through 11 sets up the melody, and everything else just keeps echoing it as you go along. Examples versus recipients. If you look at Abram, and if you had to look at the whole Old Testament, primarily as great examples for us, you'll get completely messed up. If you use that as the way to interpret this, you'll get into all kinds of interpretive error. If you say, I don't get it. These people were the patriarchs of the faith. They're supposed to be incredible examples, and they're doing all kinds of awful things. That's because it's, they're not written primarily as examples to us. They are examples, but they are examples of people who are recipients of free grace. People who are recipients of free grace, who often don't ask for it, they don't seek it, they don't recognize it when it hits them, and they're not particularly grateful for it after it hits them. They're recipients of free grace. But if you don't get this, you get into all kinds of error. I do remember a conversation with a woman I knew who grew up in the Christian faith that walked away, and I was talking to her about it, and she said, you can't believe in the Bible, it's filled with contradictions. Look at those old 
Patriarchs of the Old Testament, they all had multiple wives. What's up with that? What kind of example is that? And she used this example uh, interpretive uh, framework and, and just threw it all away. And so that doesn't make any sense at all. And you read commentators like Derek Kinder, Robert Alter, they'll say, yeah, you know, the, God is not condoning bigamy. God is not condoning polygamy. Every time someone does this, it's always ends up in disaster. They're not examples for us to follow. They're examples of recipients of free grace, despite the fact that they mess up. And it gives us great hope because as we mess up, we can say, well, there's hope for me too. Now, God's plans, human plans. Throughout the whole book, God says, here's my plan. I've got a great plan. And people are constantly messing it up with their own plans. God says, I've got the garden. I want you to live in the garden. Adam and Eve, it's going to be great. I'll walk with you in the cool of the day. We'll be together. And they say, I've got a better idea. And then God says to Abram, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Sarah. And they say, well, you know, it's not happening fast enough. I get a better idea. We'll find Hagar and do something else. There's constantly God's plans versus human plans contrasted. And it goes through the whole book. And by the end of the book, you get this wonderful verse that Joseph says that says to his brothers who betrayed him. And he gets reunited with them. And he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's the theme of the whole book. You've got your plans, even your evil plans messed up. God still works around and uses it together for his, for his good. Older versus the younger. I'm sure everyone talks about this. It's an obvious theme. But uh, in, in a family-oriented culture where the older always had precedence, in fact, a, a culture that was so family-oriented, the firstborn got everything. God is always turning that order all around. So it's always Abel, not Cain. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. It's Ephraim, not Manasseh. Every generation. Even Abraham is not the firstborn. Why is that? God says, my ways are not your ways, neither are your plans, my plans. Uh, we walk by faith, not by sight. But we'll return to this theme as we go along. Speaking of sight, eyes. Eyes are a big theme. So just if you're making a movie of this, one of my favorite movies is the 1982 movie Blade Runner. And in that movie, the eyes are a theme to the whole movie. The opening scene is a picture of a big eye. And the hero of the movie has to decide who's human and who's not human by using a machine that stares into the eye. And at the end, there's a speech by one of the characters. And he says, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. And it's all about the eyes, eyes. And you don't even see it watching the movie until someone points it out. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the thing about the eyes. And all through Genesis, Eve looks at the fruit and says, it was good to look at. Abraham says to Lot, you get to choose whichever way you go. And Lot lifted up his eyes and then looked at the land of the Jordan, beheld that it was well watered like the garden of the Lord. And then he leaves and God looks at Abraham and says, lift up your eyes and I'll show you what you're going to inherit, the promised land. Hagar is dying by the side of the road and she lifts up her eyes and she sees a spring. Abraham, when the sacrifice of Isaac, lifts up his eyes and sees a ram upon the thicket. There's always this theme of the eyes, the eyes, the eyes, seeing. And of course, the idea that God is the one who sees. Eyes are a big thing. Maybe you saw that too. Here's another one. Separation versus coming together. Separation versus coming together. Throughout the whole book, things are separated, then they come back together. You probably noticed this in the beginning. Chapter one, God creates the expanse, separating the waters from the waters. Adam and Eve were separated from the garden. Abraham and Lot separate. Then they come back together when Abraham uh, rescues him. Abraham and Sarah separate twice. Then they come back together. Hagar is separated from Sarah. She comes back. She and Ishmael are separated again. And yet at the end of Abraham's life, at his funeral, both Isaac and Ishmael are there burying the father together. Separated, coming together. Separated, coming together. And what's the theme there? Our, our sins have created a great separation between us and the Lord. How are we ever going to come together again? And it's through God's plan of redemption that he's launching with Abraham. That's how it's going to happen. But separation, coming together. Then, trees. 
maybe you saw the firstborn thing. I'm sure you saw that. The eyes. Trees are a major theme in the book of Genesis. I would never have seen this. Uh, there's some great lectures from the Bible Project, two lectures that just talk about this theme of trees in the book of Genesis. Now, when I read this, maybe you did what I did. He says, well, Abraham went and built an altar under the trees of Moray. And then he went over somewhere to the trees of Mamre. And I look at the tree thing and I say, well, it's like, you know, someone giving directions. You know, he went to the big tree, the big oak tree, and he turned left, right? And he went to the other oak tree and he stopped. It's just like someone just giving directions. But the trees are a major theme through the whole book. And so the tree you would think about, obviously, that first comes to mind, is the tree of life in the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when trees show up again and again, trees are always there to either show a decision point. Someone has to turn to the left or the right. Or they're trying to reconnect. It's, the trees are trying to reconnect. So Abraham goes to the land of Canaan. He first goes there and builds an altar under a tree. And he comes back and he has an altar. It's under a tree. And then he, the angels come. Uh, the three visitors come. The Lord and two angels. And they sit there and he says to Sarah, quick, prepare a meal of cakes. And he feeds it to them. And he watches them eat under a tree. And it's all, it's the symphony. He's trying to recreate the Garden of Eden scene where God is walking with them. In fact, in that passage, it even says God comes in the heat of the day to echo God came in the cool of the day, like in the Garden of Eden. And you're recreating a little Eden scene where they're fellowshiping with God, and it happens under a tree because they're reconnecting. We're not going to dwell on this theme today because I'm not even sure what the life application is. It's just fascinating. and actually shows what a great piece of literature the book of Genesis is. Wordplay. Wordplay. There's so much wordplay in Genesis. So I've always thought, I don't know why people go to seminary, I'm looking for Jim, I don't know why people go to seminary and they have to study Greek and Hebrew. Why do you have to study Greek and Hebrew? There's so much written in the English language, in your native tongue, about the Bible in any language. You don't need to study Greek and Hebrew. But if you study Genesis, you walk away saying, I want to. I wish I knew Hebrew. Because all the commentaries constantly referring to the Hebrew words and the Hebrew language and how interesting it is. And not just the way you think that they might when they say, oh, you read this, but the Hebrew word really means this. It's just, it's just sometimes comical wordplay, like the Harkin thing I talked about a moment ago. But there's examples everywhere. And I, don't, I can't do this justice because obviously I don't know Hebrew, but you hear people talking about it all the time. So the Oaks of Moray, when Abraham comes and he takes an altar at the Oaks of Moray, More is a Hebrew word that is close to the word for being visible. And God shows up. So God is like, it's like God is becoming visible at the oaks of visible. And you wouldn't get that in English. And then later, when he goes, God shows up again at the oaks of Mamre. Well, Mamre is just a Hebrew letters for more scramble in a different way. So this is an imperfect science. I don't know Hebrew, but it's something like God is saying, yes, the next time God shows up, shows up, he becomes visible at the oaks of Vibizet. Just a little word, because there's one Hebrew character that's switched to just remind you, oh yeah, that's the same thing I read before. That happens all the time. One of the nifty ones, when that, that scene where Abram is with the angel, recreating the Eden scene, and they're eating, and they're together, uh, when the, the Lord and two angels come visit him at the tent. Abram uh, pairs a calf, and he says he prepares a calf good and tender. Good and tender. And you read that in English, you say, oh, okay, he prepared you know, some meat, some barbecue, something good and tender. That's nice. Good to know. I guess it was tasty. That's nice. But the good and tender words are the same word. Actually, it's the same words with one character switched from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you're recreating a scene from the Garden of Eden right there. And just remind you of that scene. Abram is preparing a calf, good and tender, just like the tree of 
the knowledge of good and evil. That wordplay happens all the time. And it, it's enough to say, dang, I wish I spoke Hebrew. I wish I had studied Hebrew to understand this because people who do seem to have a lot of fun. And then finally, the entire gospel's here. The entire gospel's here. And that's what I really want to get to in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 22 in particular. So like I said, we're going to kind of go through the rest, go chapter by chapter, reach through some chapters in five seconds, so don't be surprised. You'll see some words in red, like I was saying. We'll try to linger there, and we'll try to get through and understand what God is telling us about the gospel and the life of Abraham. So to do this, I'm going to show you this diagram again. I know John had the right side of this up on the screen last, last week. I know I've shown this to you five or six times, so I won't belabor the point. And we have a couple of new guys that maybe haven't seen this before, a couple of you that maybe haven't seen it since I went through it last time, but we're just going to take about, you know, two minutes and review this very quickly. If it's too quick, just come up to me afterwards, we'll go through it and I'll explain it in more detail. But there's basically two ways to live your Christian life. You could say, basically, my Christian life is a, it's all about my moral progression. And if I'm the graph of the Christian life, I can look at the diagram on the left, where I have time on the horizontal axis and holiness on the vertical axis. And what does your life look like? Like It looks like a diagonal line. Starts at the bottom left corner, moves up and to the right. Because the Christian life is all about becoming a better Christian, moral progression. And of course, Jesus is there at the start of your Christian life. That's why the cross is in the bottom left corner, because he's there to start you out give you a fresh start, but then the rest is up to you. And through your hard work and effort, you climb up the line and become a better person and increase your moral performance. That's one way to think about your Christian life. The other way, the more biblical way, the gospel way, is on the right side. And in that view, there are, there's not one line, there are two lines, and they diverge. So there's an upward sloping line, and that line is your growing awareness over time of God's holiness, largely through the act of worship. There's also a diagonal line going down. That is your growing awareness over time of your own sinful nature, how lost and sinful you really are. And that comes through confession and repentance. And there's a gap, a growing gap between those lines, because this way of looking at the Christian life is not through a basically not driven by moral performance. It's not a progression of moral performance. It's a progression of awareness. And so you become more and more aware of the gap between you and the Lord and what it took to close that gap. And of course, that's the sacrifice of the cross. And as you grow, the sacrifice of the cross becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're more filled with wonder, awesome wonder at what he did for you. And so on the left side, you have all these arrows, all the things you do in the Christian life, like coming to Bible study. Those are all little steps you do to walk up the line. And on the right side, you still have to do all those things. But all they are doing, your whole Christian life is pointing you back to Jesus, 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 Jesus all the time. And then as a result of that, in proper sequence the dotted line at the bottom. Your life does change. Your life does change, but it's the result of the Christian life, not the point of the Christian life. And it's dotted for a reason. You're not really primarily aware of it. You're not, it's not even primarily your focus. Your focus is always on Jesus and what he did, and that transforms you from the inside out. That's gospel-driven change. I know we've covered this five or six times before, but we had to cover it again because this will be relevant for the life of Abraham. Hopefully, as we'll see as, the, as his life unfolds as we go along. So, chapter by chapter, the call of Abraham, Genesis 12. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this section to you because I'm going to keep interrupting myself. Genesis 12, uh, this majestic, poetic call of Abraham. It all starts here, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country. Remember, this country was Ur the Chaldeans, the city of moon worship. Go forth from your country and from your relatives 
And, and from your father's house, in a very family-oriented culture, God is explicitly saying, I want you to leave your family and leave your father's house to the land that I will show you. Go out, and I'll tell you later. And I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he says, those who bless you, I, I will bless. Who curses you, I will curse. I will completely protect you. I will take care of you. And I'm going to use you to make, create a great nation. You're going to have many descendants, right? And you're going to be a great nation that's going to come out of you. Wonderful promise, incredible call, and it's very majestic. And you go to Hebrews, and you read verses like, Abraham heads out, not in the King James, not knowing whither he went, because he was looking for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Right? It's all majestic. It's wonderful. The call of Abraham. Except that it's not. It's not that clear. It's actually quite convoluted. Because right before this, at the end of chapter 11, you find that Abraham has left Ur of the Chaldeans, and he's traveled only to a city called Paran, which was admittedly 500 miles away. But he hid, they left for Canaan, but got as far as the city called Haran and stopped. And he's traveling with his father and with his nephew Lot, and of course, Sarah, his wife. So he left for the promised land and then stopped in Haran. And the scholars looking at this say, it sounds like he stopped there for not like in a weekend to refresh and refuel. He stopped there for 30 years in Haran and uh, built a life there. And he's traveling with his father and his nephew. So Warren Wearsby comments on this and says, well, how do you make sense of that? Well, it must have been that Abraham told his family about the vision from God and Ur, and the family said, that's a great idea. We're coming with you. So Abraham said, well, what's the harm? I know God explicitly said, leave your relatives, leave your father's house, but come on along. Or Abraham said, well, I know God said that, but in a family-oriented culture, I can't leave your old dad behind. Maybe, maybe I'm his primary caretaker. I can't leave him behind, so everybody come along, come along for the ride. Whatever it is, Abraham compromises right at the start and brings his family along, brings his father along, and brings a lot along. And it's clear that dad is kind of the holdup because he don't, they don't leave Haran until the father dies, and then they progress later to the rest of the way to the promised land, to Canaan. But it's just right at the start, it's not a clear story of this majestic figure who hears the call of God and heads out. He's compromising as he goes. He says, we know I've got faith. Oh, oh, important detail. Haran turns out to be a really great place to make money. Because they, they become incredibly wealthy in Haran. They have lots of servants, lots of stuff. It's a great place to make money. So Abraham looks at his life and he says, well, you know, I've got, I've got fortune. I've got family. I didn't abandon family. I know God said that thing about leave your relatives, but I got family. That's important. Family is always important. And I got faith because I'm following the call of God. And admittedly, I'm not all the way to the promised land, but I'm making great progress. I have left. We're halfway there, right? These are everything in balance. Everything in moderation. And it's almost like Abraham is saying, Abram at this point, it's almost like Abram is saying, you know, the spiritual thing, you can't be too fanatical, right? I mean, this religious thing, you can't take it too seriously. You got to balance everything, everything in moderation, faith, family, fortune, all together. So finally, dad does die. And then they go the rest of the way to the promised land and they get there. And now he's there in the promised land. He sets up an altar under a tree. Everything's going to be great. He's in the promised land, fulfilling his mission. God's going to make a great nation out of him. Except it's not. There's a great famine in the land. And when I read about the famine, I mean, for years of reading about it, 
I thought, well, you know, there's a famine. He travels to Egypt. It's an ugly episode with Sarah where he has Sarah lie about the, uh, being a sister. Sarah goes to Pharaoh. That's, that's kind of self-serving. That's kind of ugly. But there was a famine, so he just travels to Egypt. It's all about Egypt's travel to Egypt. It's only reading the commentaries that I realized what a complete and total epic failure this was. So the first half of Genesis 12 was all about the call of Abram. This is about the fall of Abram because the wheels just come off the train. God had said, go to the land of Canaan and I will bless you, make you a great nation. Times get tough. There's a famine. There's nothing to eat. We're out of here. We're going to Egypt. Get to Egypt. God has already said, I will protect you. I will take care of you. Whoever blesses you, I will bless you. Curses you, I will curse. Everyone says, I got to save my own skin. God's plans, my plans. I got a different plan. Sarah, lie for me. We're going to be safe. Right? I, I know God said that, but can't trust that. So they're over there. And then it's, it's, but it's worse than that because God has said, I'm going to create a great nation out of you. You're going to have many descendants. Well, who is Abram going to do that with? Sarah. And he just gave Sarah away. So it's like Abraham looks at the promise of God and says, Yeah, you know that promised land thing? You can keep that. And the whole promise of God to create this great nation. What, what about that? He says, yeah, all that stuff, you can keep that too. I'm done. I'm done. You can have it done. All that wonderful promise business, I'm done. And, it, and actually, it turns out really well for Abram materially. So the fortune things works out great because Pharaoh obviously loves Sarah and keeps giving Abraham stuff. And so he gets really wealthy, even more wealthy than he was. Egypt, so it's turning out really great. So it, it, he's ditched his faith. He's ditched family because he, he ditched his own, his own prosperity, even having children and, and that. He has a lot, I suppose, but compromised family, but he's got fortune. And you keep reading chapter 12 and thinking at some point Abram's going to wake up and say, what have I done? I've got to go back. to. I've got to get Sarah back. I've got to get back on track. But he doesn't. God has to come to Pharaoh. God goes to Pharaoh and says, this woman is not your wife. And the Pharaoh goes to Abram and says, what have you done? Pharaoh plays the role of Nathan the prophet. What have you, what have you done? And then Abram wakes up. And then he does wake up because the Bible says in chapter 13, he goes right back to Canaan. Mark is all the way back there. And he doesn't just go back to Canaan. He goes right back to the very spot where he had last fellowship with God, to the very altar he had built when he was first in Canaan. So he's trying to reconnect with God. So there is a moment of repentance somehow in Abram's life where he says, I blew it spiritually. I got to get back on track. But, it, but until then, just chapter 12 is just a disaster for, for him spiritually. But by chapter 13, thankfully, he's spiritually back on track and making spiritual progress. So then what happens? Genesis 13, Abram and Lot separate. They've got a problem. They're getting too wealthy. The land can't support both of them, Abram and Lot. So the obvious answer here is for Abram to say, well, this land can't support us. Let's move on to other land. Let's go somewhere else, right? Abr so Abram is facing the situation. He's got to balance this whole thing of faith, family, and fortune. And he's, he's, he's going to come to the realization that he cannot keep all three. He's got, well, something's got to give. So again, the obvious answer is we'll just move on to other pastors. And at this point, Abram says, no, I'm not doing that. I did that before. I went to Egypt. This time I'm not leaving the promised land. I'm staying here in the promised land, staying in Canaan. That's good. That's spiritual progress, right? Leave Canaan, no. Then he says, tell Lot to leave. This is the one the commentators get stuck on, because they'll say this, this story, just as from a piece of literature, does not make sense. 
Abraham is the patriarch. He's the older one. In a family-oriented culture, he could have just looked at Lot and said, Lot, let me tell you how this is going to go down. You're going over there. I'm going over here. You take this dry, arid land over here. I'm taking the lush green land over here. That's the way it's going to be. And Lot would have done it. But why doesn't Abraham do that? Because he would have torched his family relationship forever with Lot. So he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not leaving the promised land. I'm not telling Lot to go away. I know. I'll give Lot the choice. And the commentators, look, at it. it's such an obvious choice, right? He knows what Lot's going to do. Hey, do you want this arid, dry, mountainous land over here? Or do you want that lush green valley over here? Up to you. <laughs> Lot says, well, you don't have to ask me twice. I lifts up his eyes, sees the land of the Jordan, well watered. I'll take that there land over there. Thank you very much. And Abraham has, by making that choice, he's preserved family, he's preserved his faith, but he's put his fortune at risk because now he has to have his growing flocks and all that on the dry air land of the mountains, right? But that's the choice he's making. So jeopardizes his own fortune. Then what happens? There's a war down in the valley. We'll cover this one really quickly. There's a war down in the valley, four kings against five. Abram, thankfully, is up in the mountains watching, doesn't get involved in the brouhaha down in the valley. The horrible route, right? And the uh, kings uh, come from other places and they defeat the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then someone from the battle comes up and says, Abram, Lot was taken away. Abram is furious. He gets 318 men and maybe some others as well. Text isn't clear. Runs down there and defeats the kings who are victorious in the battle and rescues Lot. Now, just a couple of quick things to note. Well, one is that it's easy to miss. He's actually fighting on behalf of the kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah. He is rescuing their lot. He's there to rescue Lot, but he's fighting on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he has a conversation with the king of Sodom at the end, where the king of Sodom comes by and says, look, you win. Thank you very much. You can have all the stuff. It's your plunder. You want it fair and square. I just want my people back. And Abram says, no, I won't do it. You can have the stuff. I'm not going to have people say, you may be rich. You can keep your stuff. And it's not clear, but he lets the people go back to Sodom, too. He doesn't take the people of Sodom as slaves or anything like that. So he says, you can have the people. You can have the stuff. I don't want it. That's spiritual progress. He says, this fortune thing, I'm not going to let it rule my life. You can have it. And then this character, Melchizedek, comes by. And Abraham says, well, I don't really know who you are. You came from Salem. Okay. It's modern day it's Jerusalem. But this character, Melchizedek, comes and gives him a blessing. And Abram says, I'm going to give you a tenth of everything. Here you go. So Abram would look at this and say, whatever this means, I'm not sure exactly what that means. I'm not sure who that actually was. But my spiritual life is really getting on track. I got a blessing. God blessed us. We won the battle. I'm, I don't need this stuff. My spiritual life is moving. I'm really making progress here, right? Great story. And then the covenant. And this is one I really want to linger on. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Okay, stop there a sec. So God shows up in person. Right? Wouldn't we all love that? And he has this wonderful reiteration of the promise. Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward should be very great. Abram is almost sarcastic in his tone. Really? Really? What are you going to give me? Right? Uh, I'm, I've got this person in my house uh, is going to be my heir. Apparently, even then, they did some kind of rudimentary estate planning because he has designated an heir. Right? This person is going to inherit everything. But what are you going to give me? 
And to reiterate the point, in case you missed that, he goes on again, another sentence said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir, Lord. In case you didn't understand the first sentence, let me say it again. This is all your fault. That's really bold. Right back at God. Okay. Now, what does God do? Does God say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, trust you? No. Go ahead. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. This wonderful story. Go outside and count the stars, Abraham. Count the stars, right? And what how does Abraham respond? Incredible verse. Go ahead. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Stop a second. This, this verse is quoted again in Romans, James, and Galatians. This verse was one of the cornerstones of the Protestant Reformation. Luther looked at this and said, wait a second, this is how it works. My sin is transferred to Jesus, and his righteousness is given to me, right? And, and he believed God, and it was, rec- it was credited to him. It was reckoned to him as righteousness through his belief, not through his works, right? There's a huge verse right here. So fantastic. Now, Abraham believed God. He saw the stars, believes everything is great, right? Go ahead. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So that's a reiteration of the promise. Once again, God says, I am the Lord. I gave you this. Go ahead. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So right again, God has just shown him the stars. He has this great verse where he believes. It's credited to him as righteousness. It's wonderful. And and God reiterates the promise. And then what does he do? Doubts him to his face again. How do I know? How do I know? I know you're saying that. I hear you saying that. I heard it again. How will I know? Now, even after he had this wonderful star, the statement of belief, still doubt. Okay, go ahead. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. Now, I think those of you going to our church, CCC, you've heard this story preached on a couple times from the pulpit there. Keller does an incredible job of talking about it. I think most of you know how this goes, so I'm not going to belabor this point, okay? We'll go through it fairly quickly. But the first time I heard the description of this was from Keller, and I was just just blown away to, to understand it. So if you haven't heard, for the few of you who maybe haven't heard this, we'll go over in a little detail. What is, what is happening here is a covenant ceremony. And when God says, take these animals and cut them in half, yeah, God just says, get some animals. Abraham knows exactly what to do. Abraham gets them and cuts them in half because it's going to be a contract covenant ceremony. And these ancient cultures, it was not a written culture. It's not like signing a contract like we do today. When they wanted to make agreement, this is the way they would make an agreement. Take these animals, cut them in half, separate the animals. And if we're going to make a contract with each other, you and I will walk through the pieces together, basically in a river of blood. And what we're saying is, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may it be done to me as it is to these animals. Very visible sign of our contract with each other. But the thing about these contracts was, was that's, that's fine if it's two peers. But a king making a contract with a subject would never walk through the pieces. He says, well, you have to uphold your bargain to me, but I'm the king. I don't owe you anything. Right? So with that, go ahead. 
Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So, two things. Abram would have seen the pieces cut up, sat there, fell into this deep, dark sleep, and he was waiting for God to say, Abram, Abram, wake up, wake up. Now your turn to walk through the pieces. Go. It doesn't happen. Two huge surprises in this story. One is God passes through the pieces. The king, God passes through the pieces. That would have been shocking to Abraham. What is God doing passing through the pieces? So God is saying, Abram, let me tell you how you'll know about my promise. If I don't keep up my promise, may I be cut up. May I be cut off. May this happen to me. Even though I am God, may this happen to me. That's the first surprise. But the second surprise is that the ceremony just ends. Abram is never himself called to walk through the pieces. So the, the shocking thing about this covenant is that God is saying, look, how do you know that I'll hold up my end of the bargain? I'm going to walk through the pieces. And if, it, and if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. So I will hold up my end of the bargain. But Abram, I'm going to hold up your end of the bargain too. If I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I be cut up. If you don't keep your end of the bargain, may I be cut up. It's a unilateral. Unilateral contract. God is saying, I, my promise is I will keep the obligations for both of us. And it's unconditional. It's not if you play your cards right, do the right thing. It's a complete unconditional promise in a unilateral contract. Shocking. Now, of course, what we know this means in the gospel, because centuries later, a deep darkness fell on somebody else from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Right. And that, of course, was Jesus walking to the pieces for us. If you say, Abraham said, God, when am I ever going to see you being cut up? And of course, on the cross, that was Jesus. And this from, from Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. This is the great answer in Genesis 15 of how God can be both the just and the justifier. And the phrase I want you guys to remember is this. The creator is the redeemer. The creator is the redeemer. In other faith traditions, they will say, uh, Jesus is not God. He is the son of God. And he is a created being. Sometime before time immemorial, God created the son. And when it came time to save the world, God sent that son to the cross. And it was very sad. Because he loved that son. It was very, very difficult. That is not what Genesis 15 says. That would, be, that would be difficult for God to say, I'm going to sacrifice this created being because I love this created being. Genesis 15 is saying, God itself says, I myself am the one who's going to pay the price. The creator doesn't create an object to be the redeemer. The creator is the redeemer. This is huge. And Keller talks, when Keller preaches on this, he says, this passage, Genesis 15, is the gospel. And it's more of the gospel than Romans, even than Romans. Because in Romans, Paul talks about the gospel. Here, God is actually showing me and saying, I will demonstrate to you what substitutionary atonement means. I will walk to the pieces for you. And of course, that's what Jesus did on the cross. Huge story, Genesis 15. If we did nothing else today but talk about Genesis 15, that's enough. But wait, there's more. It goes on. Genesis 16. There's this business about Sarah and Hagar. We won't cover this in any detail, but obviously uh, Abram and Sarah are getting impatient. Sarah says, sleep with my servant Hagar. That's, it turns out to be just awful. Hagar runs away. She's a fugitive slave. God appears to her in the desert, says, go back. 
you got to go back uh, to the, the household. She does. And there's actually this verse. So I'll just pause here for a second. That's, I've always stumbled on. It's always troublesome to me in Galatians. And it says, referring to this episode, it says, this is allegorically speaking for these women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children, who is to be a slave, she is Hagar, and so on. And I always read those verses in Galatians and said, I don't get it. What does it mean? It's just confusing to me. And it's actually not that hard. It's pretty simple. Uh, Isaac was a son of promise. That is great salvation through grace alone, because that is the way God is going to save through his grace. Hagar was represented works salvation when they took matters in their own hand and said, we're going to find our own way to figure this out. So that was works salvation versus salvation by grace alone through faith. And that's the contrast between Hagar and Isaac. But enough of that. Genesis 17, Abraham has his 99th birthday. God says, walk before me and be blameless. God renames them here, Abraham and Sarah, as we know them. He reiterates his promise. Abraham laughs. We always remember Sarah laughing when God says, you're going to have a son. Abraham actually laughs as well. They both laugh. And then the rite of circumcision is instituted, which we won't talk about today. Then Genesis 18. This is the beginning of the whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll linger here for a second, because Abram has spent half a chapter pleading, pleading with God. And the thing I want you to notice here, he is arguing not to save Lot out of Sodom. He spends half a chapter actually arguing to save the city of Sodom. So this is, you remember, this is the chapter where he says, Lord, okay, if, I know you're going to, God says, I'm going to destroy the city. And he says, if there are 50 righteous people there, will you save the city? Well, yes, I say, if there's 50 righteous there, I'll save the city. Okay, please bear with me. If there are 40, will you save the city? Yes, 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 there's 40. So on and so on. It's a half a chapter. It's like, you think it's like a Middle Eastern bazaar, back and forth, bargaining, bargaining, bargaining. And he's pleading with God. If there are only 10 righteous, would you save the city? Yes, yes, yes. What's this all about? He's, for the, the thing to note, Abram could have said, oh, yeah, Sodom. That's a wicked city. I hate those wicked cities. Burn it. Torch that city. They deserve it. He doesn't do that. You know, he would have known some of those people because he rescued them in the battle. He knew the king, right? He's arguing, please save Sodom. Very odd. Not rescue my son. And the other thing to notice, he doesn't argue with God's law. He doesn't say, oh, God, lighten up. You're not that bad. I mean, you got your rules and that kind of stuff. But, you know, those rules could be, should be flexible. They should be guidelines. And you say they're not righteous, but who is? Come on, you should take it easy. He didn't do any of that at all. He goes and he acknowledges the righteous law of God. He says, Lord, it's as if he knows, never argues. Your righteous law says your command has to be obeyed. Sin has to be punished. I'm not arguing that. You are absolutely 100% righteous God. You see, he is walking up that upper line a little bit. He's getting a view that God is absolutely holy. But he, but he says, if, if anything, can you save the city. What he argues for is an exchange. And this is significant because this is the first time in the Bible this whole concept comes up. And it's a huge theological principle and a theological shift. You see, with Noah, Noah was righteous. And God said, I'm going to save you because you are righteous. And all those people are going to drown in the flood. They're wicked. They're going to live and die by their own righteousness. They're wicked. They're going to drown. You're righteous. You're going to be saved. And Abram is saying here, God, is it possible to transfer righteousness? Is, can there be, any, I mean, your great ledger, where you keep all the record of wrongs, I'm not arguing with that, that's absolutely right. Is it possible, though, for a few righteous people, for their righteousness to be enough to save the city? And God is responding in principle, saying, you know, it's possible. I'm not going to do it. I'm still burning the city tomorrow. But it's possible. 
right? And then that ends the chapter. Just fascinating that Abraham argues with God for half a chapter on behalf of Sodom and establishes principle of the exchange of righteousness that it's possible. We'll come back to this a little later. Now, chapter 19, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, pillar of salt, all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. Chapter 20, Abraham and Abimelech. There's another story uh, where Abraham, it's a very simple story. Abraham is wandering in the desert again, says, these people don't fear God. I've got to save my own skin. Sarah, why don't you lie and say you're my sister? The exact same thing he did in Egypt. And the more modern theologians, some, some liberal theologians look at this and say, see, now this is evidence that Genesis had multiple authors because it's pretty much the same story. And why would it be the same story again? So some multiple author came by and saw the earlier story about Egypt and lying about Sarah and kind of rewrote it with some different, different characters, but it's just a repetition of the same story. So, and, and that completely misses the point. Wholesale, 100% misses the point of the story. This story is usually significant, which we'll, which we'll come back to the end. I'll show you later. The story is usually significant, but Abraham does this again, where he lies about Sarah and he doesn't wake up just like in Egypt. He doesn't have a moment of awareness where he says, what am I doing? God has to come to Abimelech in, in a dream and say, don't touch her. She's someone else's wife. And Abimelech comes, just like in Egypt, Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, what have you done? So in this story, what the scholars note is this story is a repeat of the fall. And Sarah plays the role of the forbidden fruit. Beautiful to look at, right? She's the forbidden fruit. Abimelech is in the role of Adam thinking about taking the forbidden fruit. Guess who's the serpent? Abraham. He's the deceiver in this story, right? After all these years of walking with the Lord, same exact sin that he did back when he was in Egypt. So keep that in mind. Genesis 21, the next chapter, Isaac is born. Son of laughter. It's wonderful. Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. This time, this is kind of an important detail. They are sent away. They're not running away. So they're not fugitive slaves on the run. They're actually free, and Ishmael can grow up in the desert. This is the part where God opens Hagar's eyes, and she sees the well of water, and they're saved. Now, this is it. Genesis 22, the climax of the whole story. Abraham is tested. We're not going to read it together. I'll, I'll summarize the story for you here, because I think we all know it. It's a very familiar story. God says to Abraham, I got a test for you. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him to me. Abraham and Isaac walk three days' journey, and God says, go to the place where I'll show you. I'll tell you later. They start walking. Three days they walk together. Isaac carries the wood. Abraham has chopped the wood, puts on Isaac. Isaac carries the wood. At some point, Isaac turns to him and says, Father. Abraham says, yes, my son. He says, the wood is here. And the fire is here. He doesn't, he doesn't mention the knife. So where's the lamb for the offering? And Abraham says, God will see to it. God will provide. Right? Your translation probably says God will provide. This is another one with that Hebrew wordplay where it basically says God will see. And, the, the, that, and that's interpreted God will see to it. God, God is seeing everything. God knows. God will see to it that there's a lamb. God will provide. Then, of course, the commentators all comment on this. So much of Abraham's life is just in fast, fast motion, just like I did, breezing through these stories. He's wandering in the desert, years and years are covered in one verse. 
you get to this point in the narrative, the whole thing goes into super slow-mo. He takes his son, he binds his son, he puts him on the altar, he takes the knife. The whole movie goes into super slow-mo. And of course, as we all know, God at the last minute says, stop, do not sacrifice your son. Right? Now I know, Abraham, that you love me because you did not withhold from me your son, your only son, whom you love from me. They see a ram, they lift up their eyes, see a ram caught in a thicket, there's a sacrifice, they sacrifice that ram instead of Isaac. Abraham builds an altar there, and he calls the altar, God will provide, God sees. Okay, now, what can we learn from this? This story gives people fits. This story is, for thousands of years, people struggle with this story. At all kinds of walks of life, people say, this story is rough. What, what is God doing asking for child sacrifice? I thought God was against child sacrifice. Why would God ask for child sacrifice? And why does Abraham even do it? Why is God testing him? The people really wrestle with this story and try to make sense of it. And, and it's been around for thousands of years. Constant, like, consternation. What, what in the world does this mean? So, part of the setup is that, is that it's, a, it's a test of Abraham. Sacrifice is in God's desire. The point is to teach Abraham something. And the key to understanding the whole story, I think, is Abraham's silence. God says, I want you to offer up your son as a sacrifice. And Abraham just starts walking. Obedience. Oh, yes, but more than that. He's, he's, he's obeying God. He's walking away in silence. Abraham spent half a chapter arguing for this evil people of Sodom. Abraham doubted God to his face, kind of sarcastically. Abraham said, you know, how will I know? What are you going to give me? Abraham had no compunction with arguing with God. God says to him, now that Isaac's here and the promise is going to be fulfilled, I want you to go sacrifice this son to me. And what does Abraham do? Silence. He doesn't argue with God. You would think he would say, God, you don't have to do this. It doesn't have to be this way. Surely there's something else we can do. He doesn't do that. He walks with silence. That's a huge part of the story. The way to understand this is this whole firstborn thing. And I would never have gotten this if, if Keller and other commentators hadn't explained this. But in ancient culture, like I said, family was everything. And within family, the firstborn was everything. The firstborn was everything. So one, one explanation here is that God is saying, look, Abram, there's a chance that what's happening is Isaac is becoming an idol in your life. And that's going to be far too important to you. You're going to take a good thing and make an ultimate thing. So I'm going to make sure that uh, in an act of obedience that you're not turning Isaac into an idol. That's, that's an interesting idea. But when God is undermining the firstborn rule again and again, what he is saying is that every, every family owes a debt of sin to me that must be paid. And we think, as individual West, in a Western culture, we say, think that of that individually. Every individual owes a debt of sin that must be paid. But what God is saying is the firstborn, by this whole rule of usurping the firstborn, he's saying every family owes a debt of sin to me that must be paid. So the firstborn was extremely important in this culture, but God had his own rules about the firstborn. Here's a quote from a scholar named uh, Von Popta. He said, every firstborn male creature was the Lord's. The Israelites were to sacrifice every firstborn male animal of their livestock, of their clean domestic animals, cattle, sheep, and goats. 
The firstborn human son, on the other hand, was to be redeemed. The Lord rejected human sacrifice, and yet the firstborn son of every Israelite family was special to the Lord. That son was supposed to be devoted to the Lord to a life of service at the tabernacle. However, the Lord chose the tribe of Levi to do this work as a substitute for the firstborn sons of the other tribes. But the firstborn son was incredibly important to the Lord. And you see this principle in the Passover, where the Passover, if, they just, if there's not the blood of the lamb on the door, every firstborn son dies. God is saying, every family owes a debt of sin to me. And, this, and the significance of this, at this point in Abraham's life, when he doesn't argue back to God, even though he'd argued for Sodom, he doesn't, say, he doesn't sass back to God at all, is Abraham is saying to God, you're right. You're right. I agree. When God says, Abraham, you have no claim of righteousness on your own. You have nothing. Abraham's silence is him saying, you're right. And that's, and, and you know why he's saying that? Abimelech, the story of Abimelech. As far as Abraham had progressed in his life, as far as he had come, he did the exact same sin later in his life, just as he did when he was younger. And he would look at that and say, I haven't made any progress at all. I haven't made any progress at all. If he had done anything, if he had seen his life as having any spiritual progress, he said, Lord, we, we talked about this, right? I've, I certainly, there's some righteousness in me that could be transferred to Isaac. You don't have to do this. There's some righteousness somewhere. You've got to admit, Lord, I made a lot of progress, right? I'm, I'm, I'm way beyond. I don't care about fortune nearly as much as I used to. I made a lot of progress, Lord. He, if Abraham was living on the single line, he would have said, Lord, I used to be a two out of 10. Now I'm, you've got to admit I'm at least a six. I've made spiritual progress. Some of that counts for something. You don't have to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham doesn't even bother because Abraham has become more like Paul. Abraham is starting to see his life as the chief of sinners. He's moved up that line. He says, Lord, Lord God, you are holy. You are righteous. Sin demands payment. No argument for me. But Lord, I am completely lost. Look what I did with Abimelech again. I have made no spiritual progress. I, I'm a lost sinner. But even Abraham knows something has to stand in the gap, right? Something has to stand in the gap. And that's why Isaac looks at him and says, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? I think at this point, Abraham's like, I don't know. I don't know. God's going to have to solve. God's going to have to close that gap. God's going to have to figure it out somehow. So the whole thing of child sacrifice is really horrific, right? But the, the scholars say this is actually not the most horrific thing. Because Abraham would have been saying, you're right, I deserve it. But he has three days to march in silence with his son. Three days to walk there. What do you do when you're coming at this point in your life? Your whole life flashes before your eyes. Your whole life flashes before your eyes. So while he's walking, you're saying, God, what, do, what about Genesis 12? What about the promise? You, in Genesis 12, you said you're going to make a great nation. This is the great nation, Isaac. What, what was that all about? You promised you were going to make a great nation out of me. And you know what God is saying to him? It's like God is saying, you know what? You have that great nation thing, that promise business? We're done. I'm done. I've given you time and again, chance again and again to show yourself, Abraham, you have blown it every time. That's what he says, you're right. You're right, I have. But then Abraham would have thought, and said, well, what about Genesis 15? What about the pieces? The whole ceremony. You walked in the pieces for both of us, remember? You knew I couldn't keep up my end of the bargain. That's why you did this. This was supposed to be an unconditional promise for me. I can never hold up my end of the bargain. You are going to hold up the bargain for both of us. 
And it's like, and this conundrum, how can God be both holy and a God of holiness and a God of grace at the same time? How can God be a God of holiness and a grace at the same time? How can he be both just and justifier at the same time? And that's why Abraham says the answer is the land God will provide. Because as we know as Christians, that centuries later, another son walked up a mountain with wood on his back. Deep darkness fell over him. Only in that ceremony, when just like Isaac looked and said, Father, and Abraham said, yes, my son. When Jesus said, Father, he got silence, right? He got nothing. And at the moment of execution, there was nothing to stop it. The knife comes down on Jesus for us on our behalf as our substitute. And that's Jesus walking through the pieces for us as our substitute. So that's the, that's the magnificence of the lamb filling in the gap and the significance of the ram they caught in the thicket, filling the, the sacrifice lamb filling in the gap, paying for their sins for them. So if you think, how do I know God is there when I doubt? How do I know God sees what I'm going through? And how do I know that God really loves me? This whole story in the book of Abraham is for you. And now with that, I'll take questions and comments. I was just going to say it's astounding that, that God the Father killed his son so that Abraham didn't have to. Amen. Oh, thank you, Louis, because it makes me think of one very important part of the story that I left out completely. And it's actually the whole point of the story. So I'm glad you reminded me. When God looks at Abram and says, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love. Obviously, as Christians, we know what that means. The point of the story is for us so that we can look at the hymn and say, now I know, Lord God, that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. That's how we know that God loves us. Thanks for reminding me. Other questions, comments? Yeah. Uh, in Hebrews 11, I think it explains some more that... that and I'll read the passage. Go ahead. Abraham knew that God had already promised that Isaac was going to was going to carry on. Right. So he he knew he was going to do it. So I'll read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it shows that Isaac, is a, it absolutely points us to Jesus. And I think there are other pastors, I think, Bob, you were talking to me about when Jesus, when Abram says to his friends, stay here, we, Isaac and I go to the mountain, and then we will, re, and we will return. There's a statement of faith that somehow God's going to figure this out. God's going to provide lamb. God's going to close the gap. It's then God's going to solve this real for us. Yeah, thank you. It is right and good that we find this story of Abraham following the command of God to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22 morally abhorrent because child sacrifice is morally abhorrent. And it, 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 it is jarring when you put up your symphony themes one of the themes that I really jumped out at me this year with Genesis was, was the blessing and promise of family. And 
you, you, especially with the patriarchs, you have Sarah who was barren, and then she has the miraculous son, and, this, and that'll be repeated with Isaac and Rebecca. But the idea is that children are good. Yes. And in our modern culture, that's something we lost sight of. I mean, all you, you just have to look at the demographic trends. It's we no longer have the confidence of our own culture to create a future for it if we don't have children. Instead, we go around with these false religions. I'm going to save the world from climate change right. and all of this. And as one way put it, you want to change the world? Start by changing a diaper. <laughs> as you were talking about that, but one of the things that I kind of glossed over, when God walks through the pieces for us, and God says, this is a whole ceremony as a way of addressing Abram's doubt, right? Because Abram doubt, and God says, okay, bring out, the, bring out the pieces, bring out the animals, and we'll do this ceremony. He is giving him re visible reassurance. But what reassurance is that for us, right? Because it was great for Abram, because he saw it right there in front of him, but for us. And the connection is, when you talk about the cost, this made me think about this. If, if we doubt, and we have doubts in our lives, and we all do, God says, you, you don't, I'm not going to crush you because you have doubt. But if we doubt, and we say, let's say you doubt so much that you're going to leave the Christian faith. Like the story I told about the woman earlier who saw the conundrum in the Bible and left the Christian faith. If you doubt so much you leave the Christian faith, everything else, everywhere you go, makes you walk through the pieces. Everything else. And so uh, certainly Muhammad does not walk through the pieces for you. Buddha does not walk through the pieces for you. But if you live for your career, your career will make you walk through the pieces. Your career is not going to walk through the pieces for you. But even if you live for a great cause, if you say, I'm going to save the world, and this is what you said that made me think about that. You say, I'm not going to live for those other trans transient things. I'm living for a great cause. The cause, even the cause will make you walk through the pieces. You always got to walk through the pieces. That this offer of God walking through the pieces just isn't on offer anywhere else. It's not available anywhere else, which is why I think Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Because no one else is no one else is offering to walk through the pieces for us. So sorry to riff on that, but thank you. You were even talking about the cause reminded me of that. Thanks. I think the thing that I got from reading this year was God knows exactly what each man needs. I think I look at it more from God's perspective. God knew Abraham needed to go through this to know what Abraham needed to know about God. Yeah. I'm reading uh, back along with what we're doing. I'm reading Oswald Chambers' book, Almost for His Highest. It's God knows what we need to go through so that we can get to the point where God wants to use us. And I think Abraham may have looked good or whatever, but in his heart, he needed to go through this. Not only was it for Abraham, but it's also an example for Jesus Christ, right. for us to realize what God went through when he lost his son. So I look at it more of a different perspective, more from God's view and for humbling the man and just the amazingness of God in each individual's life. You see it in what he does with the disciples. He deals with them differently. Andrew or, you know, everyone, he deals with them differently. He never berates them, but he tries to bring them along. And I think that's what he did with Abraham. That's why I got so much more out of Genesis. And I'm already a little ahead I'm about Joseph. I mean, you look at it, it's amazing how God knew what Joseph needed to become the man that he wanted to use. Right, right. I see the same thing with Abraham. And you look at Abraham, and you look at Moses. These are men of special relationship with God as an example to me to try to, and not in my own effort, but dependence upon God alone. 
his ability alone to work in my life to make me the man that God wants me to be, not my effort, kind yeah. of what you you're, do with your thing. So yeah. that's my perspective. It's a great perspective. It's a good clarification. It's a, there's good principles you can learn from these people. Like when Abram says, I'm coming off the single line, I'm moving to the double lines. I'm coming off of this idea that I have any merit or any claim to righteousness on my own, and I'm going to be in total dependence on your salvation, right? That's a great principle for all of us. But God is dealing with each individual in their own way. When he says, this is going to be an idol for you. It might not be for somebody else, but for you, it's going to be. And I've got to deal with that as you, an individual. And you're right. that God is so wonderful about that, right? There's these great principles for all of us, but there's also God teach each of us as individuals as well. Any other questions, comments? Yes, Jim. I, I, I was um, very impressed with Abraham. And, and, you know, to get the kind of character here and appreciate these characters, you sort of need to read the whole book, right? Because you have Abraham, then you have Isaac, then you have Jacob, right? right. And what a bum Jacob was. Uh, but I've read ahead, right? Deceiver. The, the deceiver and the manipulator the whole way. Abraham starts out after Lot gets taken captive, and he... With 300 men, he goes and takes on these kings. And then a point of testing, you know, with a king of king of Sodom. Hey, just just take, give me my people back. And he says, no, I won't take anything that's not mine. How different Jacob is, right? But throughout the book, you hear uh, God say, I am the God of Abraham, this stud of the faith who believes, you know, look at the stars. Your descendants will be as many as them. Right. And he believes that. Right. Right. And he go and even the story of Isaac, he takes his son and, and God says, go to a mountain, which I will show you. Doesn't even know which one, nope. where he's going. Say later. But living a life of it, not perfect, you know, blows it with Abimelech and Pharaoh. But what a stud. And then what a bum Jacob is. But that's the God we serve. Right. He's the God of the studs of the faith and the gods of the bums of the faith. Right. He's a God of grace to me. And I'm so glad he's not just the God of Abraham. Otherwise, I'm out cold. Right. 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 But, you know, I'm Jacob sometimes. We're all Jacob oh, yeah. sometimes. Right. And 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 so I'm glad for the grace. And then uh, to tell you the story, I, I took a friend of mine to the movie this week, uh, the Avatar number two. Throughout that movie, they use this phrase. I see you. I see you to indicate what kind of heart you have, who you are. I understand you. I trust you. And this whole phrase seems to be stolen from this book. I see you. God is the one who sees you, said was a theme in Hagar. You know, he sees Hagar. It says in chapter 16, I see you. I see your circumstances. And we're going to read about this in 24. When he comes on Isaac, uh, Eliezer, he's at the well of the God who sees me. Yes. He sees our circumstances and he sees me and he knows what we need. And Hagar, I, Hagar when she's there in the desert, she has a great testimony. It's a little bit like Thomas's testimony. When Thomas is doubting Thomas, but has such a great testimony, he says, my Lord and my God. So he has this incredible testimony. Lonely Hagar on the side of the road says, I can't believe I've seen God and I can still live. He is the God who sees. Sees. Yeah. Right. He knows, knows what I'm going through and understands. I think one more as you were talking about one more, more thought, when, when in that passage in Genesis 15, when Abraham is doubting God to his face, and God says, and he, says he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and then he doubts again, he's just like the guy in, in Mark who says, I do believe, help me, my, help me in my unbelief. Okay, since Jim brought up C, 
you made the comment when Abraham said that God would provide, and it was really C. Right. Now, being the type C of, C, being the type of person I am, I started doing some research already right here. Wait a and Fact checking. Real time. Fact checking. And you were correct that the word is C, but you didn't go far enough. Okay. That it's a very different kind of see. It is seeing with the mind's eye. The light bulb came on. And just looking up very quickly, it also references the Greek word horeo, which John uses in chapter 20 when he's standing in the tomb. And he looks and he said, I saw and believed. And the whole thing right there is it's the same concept of seeing but it's coming in his mind's eye hmm. that he is comprehending. He has just had an epiphany of what's going on. So I think Abraham and John had the same experience of seeing and understanding what was going on with God's salvation. That's great. Joe. As, as I look at the Genesis this year, there's a whole big world out there happening around Abraham. You know, those, the people are still back in Ur, Ur the Chaldeans, and there's uh, everything happened in Mesopotamia. We know a lot's going on in Egypt. And what's God doing? He's put this under a microscope so that we're watching the beginning of the building of his nation. Yeah. And we're dealing with one man today. Yeah. Abraham. And then, as I've mentioned, we're going to move on, and it's going to be Isaac. Chapter 17, he says, not only does God promise him, he names him, just like he ends up naming John the Baptist, and he yeah. names Jesus. He names Isaac. Yes, for God him. names Isaac. And he said, I will fulfill my covenant through him. Yeah. All right, so now we're razor-focused on Isaac next yeah, week. That's right. And then we're going to move on to Jacob. So all of the rest of the world is out there doing whatever they're doing. Right. And God is he's focused us on these four patriarchs. Yeah. And then we're going to we're going to come through Jacob, as we said, and then Joseph. And we're going to see again his plan unfold. So when Jacob with his 70 family uh, goes into Egypt and 420 years later, a nation is built and right. brought out. And God says, there it is. This is it. This is the plan. Yeah, it's amazing. That's the transition from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12. He is dealing with nations and 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 the world and the, the earth. And, the, and now we're just going to talk about one family. But, you know, as you're talking about that, it made me think, you know, the, how the candle of faith was flickering out in Genesis 11 before it came up. And then it, it, and there's another pattern, another part of the symphony, that when Abraham leaves and goes to Egypt, and he says, I'm kind of done here. You can have the promise. You can have the promise. Then you get the promise. Abraham is like taking the candle and then it's... I'm going to put it out. And God resurrects it. But then when God says, go up to the mountains, sacrifice your son. But until Abraham knew, and he had some faith in the idea this, God was going to figure this out. But until that, it was like Abraham is hearing God saying, this whole thing, I'm going to, I'm going to snuff out the candle myself. I'm going to sniff it out. And of course he doesn't. Praise the Lord, right? He has a plan for redemption for all of us, right? So, all right. With that, let's, let's close in prayer because it's 9.15. Thank you, Lord God, that you do have a plan of redemption for us, that your plan was to send your son, your son, your only son, whom you love, to take our place, to walk through the pieces for us and be the sacrifice for our sins. Thank you that we, through faith we can have life in you and we can know that you are the God who knows, the God who sees, knows what we're going through in your mind's eye. We appreciate that, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode and remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.